So the book of Jonah, chapter 1, reading from verse 17. Now, the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. From inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God. He said, In my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. From deep in the realm of the dead, I called for help, and you listened to my cry. You hurled me into the depths, into the very heart of the seas, and the current swirled around me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. I said, I have been banished from your sight, yet I will look again towards your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountains, I sank down. The earth beneath barred me in forever. But you, Lord my God, brought my life up from the pit. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. Those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. But I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will make good. I will say, salvation comes from the Lord. And the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. Well, good morning to Ngabi Baptist Church. It's wonderful to be here. It's wonderful to have God's Word open in front of us. I encourage you to do that now. Um, turn to the book of Jonah. We're going to be looking at chapter 2. It is a hard book to find. It's after Obadiah and before Micah. It's towards the end of the Old Testament. And I encourage you this morning, have it open there in front of you. The book of Jonah, it's an action-packed story. In a way, it would make a great movie. Uh, a runaway, a big storm a boat, a man being thrown overboard and what's going to happen to him? It has a, a fish, it has vomit. It's, it's, it's a story that is action-packed. And yet the book of Jonah is a small book with a big message. It's a book that will pierce our hearts. See, it's, 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 a, it's a story about God, but actually it talks about the story of Jonah and as he runs from God. It talks about Jonah that through his suffering, through, through his circumstances from running and going to great depths to get away from God. It is through this that God actually teaches Jonah a lesson. And this morning we're going to see that. We're going to see that through going through suffering, going through the dark valley, we're going to see through this psalm of praise, this psalm of thanksgiving, we're going to see that Jonah recognises a couple of things. 
And as we recognise what he recognises, it's actually what we can recognise as well. And so we're going to look at three things he recognises, and at the end, then we're going to have a look at two heart lessons. And so where are we at? Last week, we saw Jonah. Jonah is running from God. The divine word of God comes to Jonah the prophet and says, Arise and go to Nineveh and call out against it. And what does Jonah do? Jonah, he gets up. He doesn't stay. He doesn't head east. He actually heads completely the opposite direction, as far away as possible. And what does he do? Jonah heads down. He heads down to the the, the village or the seaside city of Joppa. He gets to Joppa and he he pays a lot of money and he he goes down into a boat and he goes down deep into the bowels of the boat where he falls asleep. And God hurls like a javelin. He hurls the wind and the waves. The sailors who know how to sail the seas, they're upset. They know something's gone wrong here. And they arise, Jonah, awake and pray. See, they've been praying, but Jonah hasn't been praying. Nowhere in chapter 1 does he call out. In this storm, and and, and so eventually he says, well, the best way to fix this is you throw me overboard. Jonah would rather die than repent. He would rather die than go to Nineveh. And so the sailors throw him overboard, and what happens? The sea becomes completely calm, and the sailors vow and sacrifice to Yahweh. Now, for some of you, you know the rest of the story, and so the next verse doesn't shock you. But, but actually, as you read the book of Jonah, we're sitting here in anticipation going, he's been thrown overboard, the storm's gone calm, what's going to happen to Jonah next? And that's where we find ourselves in, in verse 17. We can learn many things from this prayer, this psalm of thanksgiving. But go to verse 17. We're going to see that God is in control firstly. That's what he recognises, God is in control Now, when we come to reading verse 17, actually, we could skip nearly all of chapter 2. Have a listen to this. Now, the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Jump to verse 10. And the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. It would actually be very easy to read the book of Jonah and not have chapter 2 in it. But in Hebrew, in the narrative, it's, it's actually here to slow us down. It's here to actually go, what's it doing here? Many people are contemplative. Commentators go, this has been added in later because it's confusing. But actually, it's here for us to learn a lesson. It's actually here to slow us down. God is in control. Verse 17, Yahweh provided a huge fish. It says, Yahweh appointed a huge fish. I'd take my boys fishing, and when we were in Forbes, we'd go down to the river. We'd go down the Lachlan River, and I'd take them fishing with cheese and a big hook, and we wanted to catch Murray cod. Now, Murray cod are a big freshwater fish. You can't take them home unless they're 55 centimetres and over. You can catch them up to a metre, and they are huge fish. But imagine what kind of dad I would be if we went down to the river and I appointed that 1.2 metre cod to catch the hook. You know, imagine if I could sit there on the edge of the bank and command and appoint a fish to bite that hook and my boys would be ecstatic. It'd be a wonderful moment, wouldn't it? But who's gone fishing and knows that that's not the reality? Right? If you like fishing, you can't tell the fish what to do. You can go out one day and catch stuff and the other day you won't. But here in this moment, in the perfect time, in the perfect place, God has appointed, he's one step in front of Jonah, he's appointed a fish. He's in control. 
Salvation is outside of Jonah. It's outside of his control. God is in control. Who could do that? It's God can do that. But we can actually get tied up and immersed in discussions about the fish, can't we? What kind of fish was it? Was it a whale? Was it big? What did it look like? How did that fish just happen to be there? There's discussion of going, well, maybe the book of Jonah didn't really happen, but it's just a parable that's got a good story for us to learn a lesson. Others will say it's just been made up. Others will go, it's historical. And as we get into those discussions, we can actually miss the point. Have a look at verse 17 again. Oh, there's actually, I don't know, there's this discussion as well about um, back in 1891, there was a bloke called James Bartley. They were whalers. He supposedly fell, fell over the edge of the boat and he got swallowed by a whale. And the whalers thought he was gone. And then they speared this whale, pulled the whale on, they cut it open, and here he was alive. You know? And so people would go, Well, it can happen. You know? it, it can happen. They try and work out can someone survive in the belly of a fish? But we, we're actually missing the point. Have a look at verse 17 again. Who's the subject of the verb? It's God. God can do this. This is a miracle. God can do this because he's the God of creation. And we can, get, we can miss the point of the story that God is in control. But I think it's historical because it tells us that Jonah is the son of Amittai. We can go to the New Testament and Jesus, he speaks as it is being historical, as, as happening. This is a miracle. It's a miracle. Salvation is of God and God alone. See, God has arranged this fish. He's directing the affairs to both fulfill his will, but also to teach Jonah a lesson. God is in control. And it reminds me of Acts chapter 2. where God doesn't just only act in this one moment like this, but actually he acts by sending his son. In Acts chapter 23, Peter is addressing the crowd and he says, this man, he's talking about Jesus, was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge and you with the help of wicked men put him to death by nailing him to the cross. God's in control. He sent his son at the right time and at the right moment. And he raised him. So, you know, the sign of Jonah, Jesus says that these Pharisaical people, these self-righteous people are going, show us another sign, Jesus, show us another, show us another. And he gives them one, the sign of Jonah. He says, my resurrection. And Peter says, but God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep hold of him. See, God is in control. But secondly, here is the second thing we recognise, or Jonah recognises, he recognises that God is our only hope. Jonah's only hope is God. See, in verses 2 to 9, we have a psalm. It's a, it's a psalm of thanksgiving. It resembles Psalm 18. It resembles Psalm 118. It resembles Psalm 120. We can tell by the language here that Jonah knows the Psalter. He, he knows the Psalms. He's saturated in them. But also, as we read through this psalm, we see that he keeps going down and down and down and down. Last week, he went down to Joppa. He went into the boat, deep down into the boat. And now, which he's going to tell us something else. He kept going down. Have a look at verse 2. In my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. I can do nothing to get myself out of this mess. 
Even if I tried, I couldn't. And the only thing was to cry out for help. And he listened to my cry. See, Jonah's friends back in Israel can't hear his cry. Your friends can't hear you. Your job can't save you. Your parents can't come to the rescue in this moment. And he spells out the misery that he was in, the the misery of the spiral down in verses 3 to 5. And it's Hebrew poetry. For us in English, I'm terrible at English. You'll soon work that out. I'm terrible at poetry. It just doesn't rhyme. I just can't get things to rhyme. I just can't get the right words. I get tongue twisted. But see, English poetry is different to Hebrew poetry. See, in Hebrew poetry, the lines, the columns, spell something out about the same point. So you'll have one line and then the next line actually just is explaining the same thing in a different depth to give you a bigger picture. And have a look at it. You'll see it in verse 3. It's right there, verse 2 there, halfway through. From deep in the realm of the dead I called for help and you listened to my cry. Here in verse 3, here we go. You hurled me into the depths, right? That's the first line. He hurled me into the depths. But he goes again, into the very heart of the seas. Here's the next colon. And the currents, they swirled about me. You can picture him with the water going around him, but he goes again. And all your waves and your breakers, they just crashed over me. See, it's a, it's a picture of misery. It's a picture of the impending demise and the impending inevitability of him dying. He's dead. He's picturing this, I'm done for. And then we get to verse 4. I said, I have been banished from your sight, yet I will look again towards your holy temple. See, this language of looking towards your holy temple is prayer. In the Old Testament, to look towards the temple is to to pray. And when we pray, we realize that we are not in control. We pray to God because we don't have our life together. We we pray from the, the depths, you know... In in the world, as you talk with friends who go, I don't want you to talk to me about God. I don't want to hear this. But then a tragic accident happens. What do they do? Can you pray for me? I'll pray. I called out to God. In those moments of distress, what do we do when our world is falling apart? We pray. And in verses 5 and 6, he moves back out again. There's a chiasm in here in these verses. He moves back out. The engulfing waters, they threaten me. The, the rivers swirl around me. The deep surrounds me. I love this picture of seaweed being wrapped around his head. Right? He's at the bottom. He, he's, as one preacher said, it's, it's almost like he's being wrapped up, ready to be dead in a cocoon. He's, he's, right? it's, it's terrible. To the roots of the mountains. What this means is, is to where the mountains come down and they meet in the sea. The deepest point. To the roots of the mountain I sank down. The earth beneath me barred me in. This is a picture that it's painting of a, of a city. Of being in a city or being in a pit where the bars have been placed over you and they're locked. And there is no way out. You're locked in. You're there forever. There's no way out. You can do nothing. Nowhere to go. No one to call out to. But in this moment, we have divine intervention in verse 6. Did you see the divine intervention? But you, Yahweh, my God. What did he do? He brought him up from the pit. You brought me up. 
He was going down and down and down, but God turned him around and brought him up. God is Jonah's only hope. Spiraling down, but God turns it around and brings him up. I, I wonder if you know that too. Do you know that, that moment where you've just been brought low? To that moment where you're running and running and running and God turns you back. In a way, as Christians, it's all our story, isn't it? For the wages of sin is death. You are dead in your sin. But God turns us back. He brings us back. He brings us up from the pit. He brings Jonah. He's given me life. So not only do we have God as in control, not only does he recognise that God is our only hope, but thirdly, he recognises that salvation belongs to God alone. He recognises that salvation belongs to God alone. Because of his power, God can deliver. Because he's in control, he can deliver. Because it's in the midst of the belly of this fish, in the moment of his life hitting rock bottom at the depths of the ocean, that God uses this moment. And it's in this moment that Jonah learns a lesson. It's in this moment that he recognises the true reality, the true situation that he is in. Jonah's hope is not in himself. It's not in other people, but it's only in God. Have a look at verse 7 again. When my life was ebbing away, he's talking about my life is fading away. I'm disappearing. Weakness is overtaking me. He is about to expire. What he's saying is, I can do nothing. I remembered you. Like it's in that moment of deep despair, I remembered you, Yahweh. And my prayer rose to your holy temple. It's only God who can do anything about it. It's only God who can do it. But it's, it's, it's easy in life when the mortgage is getting paid and, the, and there's heaps of money in the account. It's, it's good when, it's, it's, it's easy not to think about this when your kids are successful, their health is good, they're doing well at school, they're going to get a great job, they're going to get a great career. It's, it's easy when your career is going well. It's easy when your health is, is good and you're feeling fit. It's easy when your job has security. And we can forget that it's God alone. We can forget that it's actually God alone. Because we get a sense of personal control in those moments, don't we? When our mortgage is in the, in the positive, it's, it's great. It's, it's, it's going well. We're way in front. When our kids are successful and they look better than other kids, in those moments we have a sense of personal control over the situation. But it's not until something is stripped from us. It's not until it's all actually stripped away do we actually realise it's God alone who can save. Do you see the picture he's painting here? He's picturing a pain that my life is as good as gone. Verse 2, I, I, in my distress, 
Verse 5, the engulfing waters threatened me. Verse 6, to the roots of the mountains I sank. He, he's got this picture. He's as good as gone. But not only does he recognize that he is as good as gone, he also recognizes at the same point the futility and the worthlessness of idols. You know, we picture idols in our mind possibly as a, a little statue made out of, of timber that someone might bow down and worship. We might picture an idol as, as going to a temple and bowing down before a golden calf. We may picture an idol that's being carved out of stone or wood or gold. And we picture that those things are idols. But do you realise that those idols can't do anything from the depths of the sea? What could they do from the deepest point in the ocean where, where, where Jonah has found himself in this moment, in the darkness of this belly? What can they do for him? Can he cry out to those idols and they will help? Will they do anything for him? Because see, Jonah knows, he, he's recognised that out of the storm, the storm was hurled by God. The fish was appointed to take him. He's recognised the sovereignty of God. Therefore, it exposes the worthlessness and the uselessness of idols. See, an idol ain't going to save you when you're at the bottom of the sea. You can't call out to it. Save me. See, an, an, an idol, we, we, we may not have little statues in our bedroom. We may not have a golden calf or we may not be like an Eastern religion where we, we have idols like that, but even the people of God in the Old Testament had idols. See, an, an idol is something. An idol is anything that takes central place in your life. See, an idol is what you give your devotion and your loyalty to, which rightly belongs to God. An idol is worshipping something that God created. It's worshipping the created rather than the creator. It's making good things God things. So you may not bow down to a golden calf. But you bow down to material things and wealth. It's material and money that drive your devotion and your time and your goals in life. You may not bow down in the temple to a, to a stone image, but the pursuit of your family, the, the, the idol of family has captured your time and your energy and everything that you do is for your family, for your kids and for your grandkids and everything in life for you centres around your family being at the centre of life. Maybe you don't, you don't bow down, but... But you're standing in the community. You're standing among your peers and, and how they view you actually drives your status and who you are. That it drives you to have to buy the nice clothes, buy the nice car and have the smick haircut. It could be food even. Isn't it interesting? We, we pick up the idolatry of sexual lust. But how often do we talk about food in the same way? See, food can be an idol. It can just control you that you have to have it and it makes you feel good. But 
But how's it going to go when you're in the bottom of the, <laughs> the ocean, in the belly of a fish? How well is it going to go when you call out to your family and say, hey, come and rescue me? When for your whole life you've been using them to make you feel safe and secure and rescue you, but when you're in the actual pit, can you call out to them and they will? How's it going to go when you're in the belly of the fish? When money and aspirations has been driven by money and material things and houses, how's that going to go when you call out? It's going to do nothing. It's worthless. Because they're vain things. Knowing that God is in charge, knowing that God is our only hope, knowing that salvation belongs to him alone, it it, it actually leads to a response of praise. It leads to a response of, of thanksgiving. Our praise and our worship come, our praise and our worship comes from what we know. The praise and worship of God comes from what we know. And look at the verse 9. In a way, what a wonderful verse to sum up of all of Scripture. Or the, the, the narrative of Genesis to Revelation, salvation belongs to God. Salvation comes from the Lord, or literally it's saying salvation belongs to Yahweh. Therefore, it belongs to no one else. It means you can't go anywhere else to find it. Your salvation is wholly and exclusively, totally and utterly all of God's doing. It's not that we add 85% to us, that God adds 85% to our salvation, and then we come along and we add a 15%, and then we're saved. No, God saves us, and that's the beautiful message of the good news of Jesus Christ that through his life, death, and resurrection, we can have salvation because he has done everything. His righteousness becomes our righteousness. That his resurrection will become our resurrection because he has done it all. Throughout the whole Bible, we have this painted picture of God's redemptive plan. That it's God who seeks us. It's not us running to him going, God, we need you all the time. Rather, no, God breaks into our mess. God the Father sent his son to be born in a manger to walk this worth and to be crucified on a cross and to be buried and on the third day he rose again. And yet in our messed up, chaotic, self-pleasing, idolatrous lives, we sometimes forget that. But Jonah knows salvation belongs to God alone. So there's nowhere else for him to turn. He can't turn to idols. Salvation belongs to God alone. And why does God do it? Why does God do it? Purely because of his mercy and his scandalous grace. Because as readers, we know that Jonah doesn't deserve this. Jonah doesn't deserve a second chance. He is running as far away from God as he can get. He would rather be thrown overboard than repent. You might be here today and you might say to me, yeah, I'm not a Christian, 
but I've done so many things. I have stuffed up so much that not, not even God can save me. Jonah chapter 2 says, no, you're not too far gone. You can never be too far gone for Jesus to rescue you. How beautiful that is. Jonah chapter 2. Because salvation belongs to him. It doesn't belong to you. you. You come and you cry and just rest in the finished work of Christ and you can have salvation. No matter how littered your life is with sin, no matter how much you have done, no matter how guilt and shame you feel, it's never too big for Jesus. What a wonderful message of Jonah chapter 2. But, but what a wonderful message for Christians here today as well. What a wonderful message for us that if we are in Christ Jesus, we can never go too far. We can never run too far from God that he won't rescue us. Isn't that freeing to know? Because the Old Testament... It's not that the Old Testament teaches these laws and things that you have to uphold and then we get to the New Testament and we have Jesus. No, the Old Testament actually continually shows us the scandalous mercy and the grace of God in redeeming people. That, that passage where he says to Abraham, through you all nations will be blessed. God's going to make sure that it happens. See, what do we recognise? We recognise that the God who is in charge is our only hope because salvation belongs to him. The God who is in charge is our only hope because salvation belongs to the Lord. But we've got a couple of heart lessons today for us. As we come to this chapter, we need to be very careful that we don't become too obsessed with the smelling and the stink and the acid inside the stomach of the fish, that we miss what's going on inside Jonah's heart at the same time. See, last week I mentioned there's this gap between our doctrine and our actions. And here we're going to see in Jonah chapter 2, again, there is, he gets the doctrine right. But there's a gap with his actions. Now you might say, how do I come to that? I'm, I'm allowing Jonah chapter 4 to help me interpret Jonah chapter 2. And to get that answer, you're going to have to come back in two weeks' time. So come back next week and the week after. And hopefully you'll see why I'm convinced that here we have a gap between what Jonah knows in his mind. So he's declaring it well, but there's a gap in his action. Because Jonah has a perception of reality that is distorted. He has a perception that's slightly distorted. Why do I say that? Because in, as I read this, I see this self-centeredness in him. Did you notice it? Did you know? It's really worth noting the language of this psalm. I... I, my, I, I did this, I did that. I called for help, I said, I remembered. There's this, in the element of him going down, there's this element of I. And, and, and we get to verse 10, have a look at verse 10. And the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. The more I read this, the more I ponder bleh, that actually what Jonah has just said bleh, spews him up on dry land. And I, I wonder why we may not miss, I wonder why we may miss this. 
And I, I wonder, do we miss it? Because in our culture, in our worldview at the moment, life is all about the self. It's all about I and me and me and my and I do this and I do that. It's actually, believe in yourself. Doesn't matter what you do, believe in yourself and I will do this. See, he gets the doctrine so right, God is my only hope. He gets the doctrine right that God is salvation and he is the only one who owns salvation. It's only through him and yet he maximizes and minimizes. So here's a heart lesson for us. We can maximize and minimize sin. What do I mean by this? Jonah, as he looks at other people, he is maximizing the sin of others whilst minimizing the sin of himself. So the more I read this chapter, the more I read it, it actually troubles me. Why? Because there's an absence of many things. There's an absence of omitting guilt. There's no admission of guilt. There doesn't appear to be repentance. There's no acknowledgement of sin. And as you read the psalm, it almost sounds as if Jonah is just an innocent bystander in all that is going on. Have a look, at, look, look for where I go to. Go to verse 4 for a second. I said, I have been banished. Can anyone reflect back to chapter 1? Was he banished? He ran from God. He wanted to get as far away from him. He packed up his things, paid a very expensive fare to get to Tarshish. I fled, but oh no, oh, oh, I've been banished. He, he maximizes the pagan sin and minimizes his own. Have a look at verse 8. Those who cling to worthless idols, that's correct, he knows they're useless. But, but here in the, in the Hebrew, there's a they turn away. Do you notice the language? They turn away. He's, he's actually pointing the finger. But, but I, but look at me, on the other hand, I have vowed, I have made good. I will make good. He's, he's look at them. Look what they've done. See, what Jonah hasn't realised is he's got no idea what's just taken place in chapter 1. See, Jonah's been thrown overboard, right? The calms go, see, he's in the belly of the fish. He says, I'm not like those people who worship idols. Now, who was worshipping idols in chapter 1? The sailors. And then what happened to the sailors? They turned around and they repented and they bowed and they worshipped Yahweh alone. See, <laughs> there's an irony here. He thinks, oh, but they wouldn't have done that, but they have. See, the irony is that the, the very pagans the Israelites despise are actually quicker in realising their need of Yahweh and they turn to him in worship than Jonah, who is the voice piece of God. They are quicker to notice their own sin than Jonah is willing to admit his sin. And yet, as it troubles me, as I read this chapter over and over again, at this doctrine-filled prayer, and yet this disconnect of self-centeredness, as he exalts the Lord as salvation, but there's moments of inwardness, as that troubles me that he's doing that, I've actually come to realise I do that. 
So it's not that we just sit here and we point our finger at Jonah. It's actually, I do this. You do it. We were all just like Jonah, dead in our sin. At the moment of salvation, that, that, that moment 20 years ago that you might have had, that, that moment where, where, where your sin and your guilt became really aware and you turned to Christ and, and you've been rescued, in that moment you're aware of that and you rejoiced and you praised God. But I wonder whether it's 20 years down the track as a Christian, you've sort of, you're not really aware of it, you've, you've moved on. I'm not as bad as I was then. See, we need the gospel just as we need the gospel just as much today in our Christian lives as when we first believed. See, the very idolatry, the very idolatry that Jonah was condemning was the same idolatry that he was actually caught up in. In, in 1 Samuel, we have Samuel who speaks, who says, Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the law, Lord? You see, there's this, people can sacrifice, we can worship, we can do all these things, but, but actually it's better to obey. And you notice what Jonah's done? He hasn't obeyed, he's just gone. To, to obey is better than sacrifice. And to heed is better than the fat of rams. And that same theme is picked up in Hebrews chapter 10 as well. So we maximize and we minimize. And I love the story of testimonies. I love it when people share what Jesus has done to rescue them. But I also have that, that, that odd person who says to me, and a lot of people do it, I've done it. Where you go, oh, we'd love you to share your testimony. And they go, oh, no, nah, it's not much of a testimony. Go, go, it's not, nothing like Jimmy's over there. Or you talk to someone else, you go, oh, yeah, but, you know, I, I, it's not a story like Joan. Like, she was, she was addicted to drugs and alcohol, and God turned her life around. I just grew up in a local church and went to Sunday every week, and then God grabbed hold of me. Do you see a dilemma there? We, I know, we maximise the sin of others to minimise our own sin. Now, I don't think we're actually necessarily doing it in that moment, but what we're doing is we're, we're looking at sin as an action. And in that moment when we go, my, my testimony's not like Jones over there, we're, we're actually saying her sin was worse than my sin. It took more for God to turn her around than it did to turn me around. And it's easy, isn't it, growing up in a church like me? You grow up in a church where there's plenty of things you're told you must do. And we revert to sin as being action only. We review our sin as an action rather than a problem of the heart. Everyone's testimony is amazing because Christ had to die for them. Everyone's testimony. It's what Christ has done that's amazing. See, in Romans chapter 1, he alludes to this. He, 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 he talks to the pagans and, and, and those Jewish religious leaders will be thinking, oh yeah, they, they, they're terrible. Look what they've done. They've done this, done this, and they do stand condemned. Then he gets to Romans chapter 2 and Paul basically says, well, you religious people, guess what? You're just as condemned as they are. There is no one righteous in chapter 3. No one, 
who does good. No one can stand before God. See, there's, we maximise and we minimise. And, and I've been reflecting this week on this and, and I realise to myself there's an element that sometimes we lose and that's the, we lose the element of confession. Paul Tripp, he says this, you cannot confess what you haven't grieved. You cannot confess what you haven't grieved yet and you cannot grieve what you cannot see and you cannot repent of what you haven't confessed. Do you see what he's saying? You cannot confess if you haven't grieved what you've done, but if you, haven't, if you can't grieve, you actually haven't seen your sin, and you can't repent if you haven't confessed. See, confession and repentance go hand in hand. As one person says, confession and repentance say, God, change me. And I wonder whether the church in the West has actually started to lose this idea of confession. Throughout the years, churches have they've often had a time, now I'm not talking about liturgy and getting all this stuff structured in a perfect way, but often there was a call to worship, a call to praise. We often in our prayers have a time of adoration, we have a time of thanksgiving, we have a time of supplication where we, we ask God of things, but how often are we confessing that we have sinned? I wonder if we've lost that. When was the last time you said sorry? When was the last time you admitted that you got something wrong? I'll tell you what a brave prayer to pray is that one of my lecturers said to me once at Bible college. He says, a brave prayer to ask is to say, God, show me my sin because God will show you your sin. If you don't know what your sin is and you're married, tell me bring your wife or your husband up with me and I'm sure they'll be able to tell you, even though you can't see it. When was the last time you said sorry? When was the last time you admitted that you were wrong? We want to be a church that wants to make and grow disciples of Jesus. We want to be deep disciples. We want to be mature disciples. One of our purposes is to be maturing in Christ. And one of the ways that we do that is we need to be people who are of repentance and confession. That don't maximise the sin in others so that we minimise our own sin. Because we maximise and minimise because the other heart problem is pride prevents compassion. Number two, pride prevents compassion. What's happening here is in a way I see Jonah, he's prideful. And when you're prideful, it prevents you to show mercy and compassion to other people. Why? Because you are constantly comparing yourself to someone else. That's what pride does. Pride puffs up in you because you look at someone else and go, man, I'm so much better. I used to... um. When I did Bible college, you know, I'm not that English illiterate, I'm not that good at writing stuff. And we had three kids in a couple of years, while, we had two kids while at Bible college. College life was hectic, exam time is hectic, and you just think, how the heck am I going to even pass this subject? And so what I would do is I would compare. I would look at the singles who didn't put much effort in, and I'd look at them and go, I know they're going to pass this exam. And so what it did, what it did for me, because I knew I'd put more effort in, I'd go on, Ah, I'm going to pass. So, you know, we compare so that we get bigger. We, we always compare to someone who's worse than us, don't we? Pride is always putting yourself above others. Jonah received what he didn't deserve. It's interesting with our CVs. What do we put on our CVs? We have to paint a very, very good picture of who we are. 
We have to sell ourselves. Our world says sell yourself. But spiritual pride is dangerous, isn't it? It's the spiritual pride that overtakes us that we sit there and we go, you know what, I, I sound better in prayer than that person. I say, oh, I must be more holy because my prayers are so much enriched. Sometimes we can, we can have spiritual pride where we go, you know what, I must be more connected to God than Joanne who's sitting over there. More connected. Well, we need to understand the gospel. You see how spiritual pride gets in the road? The, the spiritual pride of financial decisions, looking at yourself going, man, I've saved well, I've made some really smart decisions, I've given generously at church, but man, if only Bill had done what I did, he wouldn't be in the situation he's in. You know, oh, Bill, look, at he's, he's an angry man, but my anger is not, it's just passion. The spiritual pride in, 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 in us, that we can even pull everything apart of someone else. See, pr- pride prevents compassion. You can sit there and you go, what you have just done is so terrible that you pull everything that they have done apart so that you look better. Spiritual pride can be being quick to seek justice and revenge. To kill pride is to look to the cross. To look to the cross where the Prince of Glory died. My richest gain I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. See, when we look to the cross, it's where we are humbled. And it reminds me of that story of, of Jesus in Luke 18. Where some self-righteous, some spiritual pride is coming out in, the, in people. And Jesus tells of this parable, two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. God, I thank you that I'm not like the robbers. I'm not like the evildoers. I'm not like the adulterers or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all I get. But that tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but he would beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a a sinner. I tell you that this man rather than the other one went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. God, I am so thankful that my kids do not disbehave like that parent over there. I am so thankful that I am so much better than my work colleagues on a Monday morning. God, I am so thankful that I dress in the right clothes on a Sunday. Void of compassion and mercy. When we recognise that God is in control, that God is our only hope and God is salvation alone, there is no room to maximise and minimise. There is no room for pride, but there's room for compassion. See, for Jonah, as we close, for Jonah, as he was being spewed up on the shore, this would have been a humiliating situation for the prophet. Throughout the Old Testament, often vomiting is referred to judgment, but also in Jeremiah, vomiting is also referred to as humiliation and being humbled. So you imagine the humility now of Jonah as he's being spewed up, the humility that's going to be required of Jonah in Jonah chapter 3, verse 2, when he goes to Nineveh with a message, where he will turn up next week. He can't turn up there now and say, I am better than you. Where's he been? 
He's been in the belly of a fish. And we too, we too have been humbled by the cross. We too have been humbled by what Christ has done, that salvation is only through him. We've been humbled through that so that as we go out this week into the workforce, as we go out onto the soccer field or as we go out and play sport, as we go and buy our fish and chips down at the shop or we go and have a meal, we come as people who have been humbled by the cross. We can't go out in pride, but we go out with humility because the God who is in charge is our only hope. And salvation belongs to him alone. Let's pray. Father, we, we thank you that salvation belongs only to you, that in our dead, in, when we were dead in our sins, you have rescued us. Father, so often we sin. So often we wake up each day focused on ourselves and our plans. So often we look at others and think we are better. Father, restore, refresh us. Give us another beautiful picture of the good news of Jesus Christ so that as we go out this week, we'll be humble servants of the gospel with no pride, no arrogance, no spiritual pride, but people who are just overwhelming in awe and wonder that it's in Christ alone we are saved. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.